Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a truly exciting episode of America Adapts. This is an epic, nearly a year in the making show. I join with Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund to take a behind the scenes look at how WWF is adapting conservation to the new realities of climate change and helping governments prepare for the future in ways that ensure a place for nature. During this eight month journey, I follow how WWF is developing a simple process to integrate climate change risks into its strategies and documents the challenges and triumphs they face along the way. This was a dazzling episode for me. It features WWF staff from 20 countries on five continents, telling stories on a wide range of topics, including elephants, super typhoons, and urban water scarcity. And even though the episode focuses on conservation, the lessons learned from this process can be applied to almost every adaptation sector. It's not easy institutionalizing adaptation, but much is to be learned by WWF's efforts. Please stick around until the end of the episode for episode housekeeping. Okay, adapters, strap yourselves in. We're going on a worldwide journey of adaptation with the panda. Hey, adapters, we are back with a very special episode. I am with Sean Martin, Senior Director for Climate Change Adaptation Resilience at World Wildlife Fund in Washington, D.C. Hey, Sean. Hey, Doug. Great to be back. Okay, Sean. As you know, this is a very different episode for me. I'm very excited about what we're doing here. This is eight months in the making. It started off in Kenya. I'm very excited to be sharing this with my listeners. And so how did you come up with this idea and how are you going to use this episode? So uh, for me, it actually started before our workshop in Kenya. It's a year in the making for me. I thought, you know, we're, we're really trying to adapt conservation at World Wildlife Fund and we're you know, trying out some new ways of doing that. And I really wanted to document the process and the learning over time so that uh, WWF staff could learn from it and hopefully your listeners as well. So we're actually producing an audio documentary. Okay, so WWF is a fairly complicated organization. You have offices all over the world, but WWF isn't a single organization. Can you give a little background to help my listeners better understand WWF as they follow the rest of this episode? Sure. WWF is a pretty complicated organization. Many people think we're just one single organization with a headquarters and all of our many offices take direction from that single headquarters. But actually, we are a federation of 30 or more WWS by now with 100 offices all over the world. And each country has its own conservation strategy. And so when we dive into this episode, your listeners are going to hear from lots of people from our country offices all over the world. And it's it's good to remember that they each have unique challenges with conservation and climate change in their countries. And they all have different strategies to tackle those challenges. Okay, so let's just do this. In the first part of this episode, we're going to take a world tour to learn how climate change impacts are already affecting WWF's conservation work. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this part of the episode. We're going to start off by going to the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, and we'll hear about how rapid economic development and climate change are together threatening the rich biodiversity of that region. And then we're off to Mexico to learn about how climate change is threatening the monarch butterfly in its wintering grounds. 
And then it's to Madagascar, where a lot of people have been displaced by severe droughts, and now they're moving into forest land, cutting down those forests to farm. In the Philippines, we're going to learn how that country and WWF is involved in planning for super typhoons. In Uganda, we'll learn how increased water scarcity is driving conflict between farmers and elephants. And finally, we'll land in Cape Town, South Africa to see how the severe drought there has affected the city and has even made it difficult for WF staff to come to work. Okay, and let me just say really quickly how awesome it was for me, even Skyping in with these folks from all over the world. It was just a fantastic opportunity. So let's jump right in and hear from them. My name is Kate Tepperman, and I'm working in WWF Vietnam's climate and energy practice. WWF works a lot on the Mekong Delta, which is a priority landscape for our conservation work. WWF has been working there since 2007, and we work to restore the resilience of the Delta and highlight risky investments and support biodiversity and resilience of local people. The Delta's one of the most fertile, well, the Mekong is one of the most fertile deltas in the world, and it's a, a strong hotspot for freshwater and coastal biodiversity. So there's more than 300 species of fish. There's a range of habitats like rivers and freshwater wetlands, mangroves, grasses, paddy land, peatlands. But also it's economically very critical for Vietnam. So it's the most productive aquaculture and agricultural area. It contributes to a fifth of GDP, produces half of Vietnam's rice, um, 90% of rice exports, 70% of fruit, 65% of seafood, and it's home to 18 million people. The Delta in particular is its facing considerable threat from development, but these are very much exacerbated by climate change. So the Mekong is one of the, the three most vulnerable deltas on Earth, and rising sea levels, increased frequent tropical storms, aggressive wind and waves, Shifting rainfall patterns and higher temperatures all add to water stress and exposure to natural disasters, which aggravate the impacts to people. And those threaten mangroves and housing and infrastructure and also um, agriculture and aquaculture in the Delta, which threaten those zones and the, the Mekong Delta particularly, which is barely above sea level. So that's just some of the impacts. I'm Eduardo Rendon Salinas. I'm a biologist. Currently, I work with WWF, and in fact, I've been working with this institution since 2005. The place where we are working is the center of the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve. This natural protected area was created in 2000 to protect the main overwintering sites for the monarch butterflies that migrate from Canada and United States to Mexico to spend the winter. In this forest, the 90% of the total population in North America here the winter. What are the changes in climate that you are seeing and most concerned about? One example, in, on March of 2016, when we thought that we are finishing the monitoring overwintering and all activities related with the conservation of the monarchs, we had a most important rainstorm that I saw in the last 20 years in my life here with the monarchs. So the impact of the rainstorm was tremendous. A lot of monarchs died, around 7 million of them, because this storm 
was really, really non-normal situation for the overwintering here. So that kind of things are happening right now. And we are, of course, a new kind of challenges. Traditionally, the most important impact here in the overwintering sites was the illegal logging. And right now, we must to consider the changes of the climate to do actions to be adapted to these kind of situations. It's totally different. So my name is Harry Sua, and uh, I'm working for WWF Madagascar as the senior officer of climate change adaptation. So my role is like to ensure that WWF Madagascar work is climate smart, to ensure that all of the work that we are doing address climate risk. So can you describe just a specific place where you work and, and why that's important to World Wildlife Fund? Since 2012, WWF Madagascar has focused its work on four priority landscape. And I'm going to talk about Manabul Sirbina landscape, which is located in the western part of the country. This landscape is home of a very rich biodiversity, including mangroves, dry forests, lakes, marshes, and one of the iconic biodiversities, Limur. And uh, one of the reasons I want to talk about climate change in this area because we, we have experienced a very interesting issue the last five years, human displacement. In general, WWF is most concerned about the impact of climate change on communities, which has really indirect impact on the the biodiversity. From the report done by WWF in 2017, we lost 20,000 hectares of dry forest. One of the main causes is the human migration. Uh, As an example, the drought that happened in the deep south of Madagascar, brought thousands of workers. They came in this area to convert forests to groundnut and maize, and they cleared the forests near the projected areas, which really make our conservation work very challenging. Gia Ibai, I had the climate and energy program for WWF Philippines. Okay, so help my listeners visualize the Philippines. What are some of the climate impacts that you have to deal with over there? Okay, so the Philippines is an archipelagic country. We're composed of over 7,600 islands. So we get a lot of typhoons and storms from the Pacific, um, very strong ones. But since we have a lot of islands and we're surrounded by oceans, um, sea level rise is also a big challenge for coastal communities Okay, so typhoons are something that the Philippines have to think about every year. And this you have a great story here, and I just want to set up a little bit. You went through this process. It wasn't a scenario plan. It was a vulnerability assessment, right? Um, it was a sort of a combination of both. We did what we called a business risk assessment. And based on that assessment, people make a scenario building exercise. And um, the story I was going to say was that I facilitated a a scenario-building exercise for a worst-case scenario for the city of Tacloban. So we went through the exercise, and part of their story was that by 2023, there will be like a super typhoon that will visit the city and basically devastate it. This scenario-building exercise happened just a little over a month before super typhoon Haiyan visited the city. 
and it's it's very up to now I get goosebumps because I see how they actually envisioned that they would be visited by a super typhoon. They just didn't have enough time to really plan and prepare for it. At the time, Haiyan was the strongest typhoon to ever make landfall. It was beyond Category 5. You know, I, I still recall the, the way the scenario building story came out. And when we matched it with how awesome the typhoon was, even the worst case scenario can, cannot compare to what the reality was, especially what happened after. I mean, you get components of, of some of those that are in the story, but there are certain things that you never really thought of in terms of what would actually happen if a super typhoon visited you. My name is Jacob Etunganan. I work as the climate change manager for the WWF Uganda country office. What are the, some of the changes in climate and in weather specifically to Uganda that people there and, and I guess WDF is most concerned about? One of it is um, the prolonged dry spells. You realize that still within the parks, the wildlife will require water, especially for the elephants. So with the increasing dry spells, automatically dry water sources within the park, when these surface water sources dry, the elephants have to find a way out of the park. In Queen Elizabeth National Park is where you find the elephants. So with uh, the increasing uh, drought and the rest, the water levels recede down and down. And we've had cases where um, elephants have um, left the park area and crushed on community crops. But most interesting is the communities have also in one way or the other encroached the land around the park. Because their land is now dry, there is no water, and the park land seems to be having some moisture uh, because it's naturally covered by trees, so they tend to go and do farming there. So as they plant their crops within the park, automatically the elephants are interested in the bananas they have planted because they feel this is a fruit for us. So what was actually happening? One elephant visited the farm day one, and then simply goes back and tells the rest that there is food somewhere. And the whole week they were visiting this place. And so most of the elephants and elephants always get to eat at night. So once the communities have got, have gone into their houses, they will come into these gardens and destroy almost the whole livelihood of these communities. After community waking up in the morning and finding that the whole garden was destroyed, and they go to the district authorities and tell them, if you do not control these elephants, we're going to kill them. So you typically find that at the end of the day, the impacts of climate change that Uganda is already facing will undo some of our conservation efforts. My name is Kauredo Chilwani, and I am currently the Senior Manager Climate Change Programme in WWF South Africa. What are the changes in climate and weather in South Africa that people are most concerned about? Um, in South Africa, we are mostly concerned about the recent drought that has hit most of our capital cities, which is Cape Town, Etequini, as well as parts of the Eastern Cape province. We even heard about that here in the United States that 
Cape Town was, there was even a potential date where you guys were going to run out of water. And when you're dealing with a situation where humans aren't even going to have access to water, how does that make your job more challenging when your focus is on wildlife? Our job is, was made more challenging from the basic fact that um, within the area in Cape Town, we saw a lot of people running out of water. Um, the city having set up various points where people can come with buckets and containers to collect water. So from the basic human rights side, for us, that was um, something that is very real and serious. And we were also experiencing it through our staff turnout, where you would have a lot of people struggling with water, especially those that are coming from townships. I don't know if you know what townships are. Mainly people that where you find a lot of black communities staying there and you'll find that they will have challenges coming to work because they didn't have water to really prepare themselves and for the entire families. So that has actually made our work quite difficult. But at the same time, we were also uh, playing a role in terms of working closely with the city to come up with measures to help uh, the city cope with the impacts um, that they're currently experiencing um, resulting from water shortages. All right, that was fantastic. I hope everyone learned what WWF offices around the world are going through, what the various climate change impacts that they're dealing with. So Sean, what's next? So next we're off to Nairobi, Kenya to listen in on a three-day workshop that we held in April. You've learned about the climate change impact some of our offices are facing. And what we were doing at the workshop is to look at to see if our offices are actually addressing those threats in their conservation strategies. And your listeners will find out what we learned there and how we're developing a process to move forward and help offices really get a handle on how they're going to manage these threats going forward in the course of their daily conservation work. Okay, adapters, pack your bags. We're going to Kenya. I am here with Sean Martin of the World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Hi, Doug. It's going great. So what brings us to Kenya? We're here for a three-day workshop with about 30 people. And what we're going to do is review conservation strategies to see if they make sense in a changing climate. And we're calling this initiative ClickSnap. All right. So what exactly does ClickSnap mean? ClickSnap is a portmanteau of two acronyms. CLICS stands for Climate Informed Conservation Strategies. And NAP stands for National Adaptation Plans. What we're doing with 16 of our country offices is that we're going to review their conservation strategies to see if they make sense in a climate changing world. And we're going to make some modifications to those. And then what we're going to do is then is take that learning from this climate smarting process. And we're going to use that information to help inform country governments as they develop their national adaptation plans to make sure that the kinds of things that WWF would like to see in a national adaptation plan are actually there. So both of those things together, CLICS, the Climate Informed Conservation Strategies, and NAP, National Adaptation Plans, we're putting those together in one initiative called ClickSnap. All right, I want a little bit more history, though. Whose idea was it? Someone had to come up with ClickSnap. Was that your idea, or was it some initiative that was already underway at WWF? 
It was multiple ideas from multiple people converging at the same time. I've been at WWF for 17 years now. About the last 10 of those, I've been working on adaptation. It's long been my goal to have WWF move away from adaptation as being a standalone program or initiative into something that's more holistic with the rest of our conservation strategy. So I proposed this idea that we climate smart all of our conservation strategies. Another individual, my colleague who works in WF Nepal, he came up with the idea that we should be really surging together as a WF network to influence national adaptation plans. And we decided that those two things would work well together as one single initiative. So we uh, merged them and came up with a great acronym, ClickSnap. So you have given me a little bit of a preview and you have your own expectations and we can dig into those a little bit later. But what do you think the expectations of these people that are coming from all these different country offices. And I'll, I'll get some of their own feedback, but I'm just curious here at the beginning, what, what do you think they're expecting? I don't know what they're expecting. I only know what I hope they're expecting. And that is that WWF has decided that it's important to integrate climate change risk management into our conservation strategies. And I'm hoping that people are here coming here to learn more about that so that they'll go home and have the same kind of process with the staff back in their offices. Now, I don't know if that's what people know they signed up for by coming here. Some people have the impression that we're going to come here to talk about adaptation. What are some of the solutions we can adopt to help preserve our conservation strategies as they are? And I'm moving this in an entirely different direction. I want to make sure that we're reviewing our goals and outcomes before we get into adaptation. Some of the goals that we've set for ourselves really need to be rethought when you think about climate change. Are some of the things that we're trying to achieve in the next five, 10 years, are they actually going to be achievable in the long run with climate change? And if they're not, maybe we should rethink those goals. At the end of this workshop, if everything just went perfectly with all these different participants, what would that look like to you? I think... And I'm hoping that people are going to be really excited to go home with a new way of thinking about conservation in a changing climate and go home and work with their country office staff to really revise our strategies. If we're not revising our strategies in light of climate change, like Dan Ash said on a previous episode of yours, we're really not doing right by conservation. We can't escape climate change. We can try to slow it down or limit it, but we know there's Climate change is baked into the system that we're already going to experience, no matter what we do on climate change mitigation. And I don't think our strategies are really embracing that fact as much as they could. At the end of the day, at the end of the workshop, I'm hoping that everyone understands that and they'll be motivated to go home and make some change in their own offices. Out of 16 countries, if we get five that go home and really embrace this and do a good job climate smarting their strategies, I'll be happy. And then we have this other other part of the strategy for nat national adaptation plans. National adaptation plans are a real opportunity for conservation groups like WWF to make sure country governments get it right as they seek to help their nations adapt. And when I say get it right, I mean that we're adapting to climate change in ways that support and do not undermine nature. And in fact, we're helping nature adapt through these national adaptation plans. 
I think there's a risk that country governments might overlook nature as they try to help the, the vulnerable people in their countries. Uh, of course, we need to help vulnerable people, but we think the best way to do that is by also supporting nature because those provide important ecosystem services for people to adapt to climate change as well as for their everyday livelihoods. You probably have an idealized way of thinking if a country office was doing something really well. <laughs> are there any countries that you hold up as models that are saying, okay, they are well along in this process because they've worked with you with the WWF adaptation office? Or are people sort of starting off on a level playing field at, in, at WWF? Our offices vary widely in the adaptation experience and capacity they have in their own offices. Some offices are doing great things, but still need improvement. Others are just starting. And it's a good sign that they're here for this workshop. It wasn't easy for an office to participate in this workshop. We actually needed their, their senior management, either a conservation director or a CEO, to sign off that they have agreed to allow their conservation strategies to be reviewed. That's really important because when we've tried this kind of exercise in the past, people like me get very excited and, and really see the, uh, the reason why we have to do it. But if the senior leadership isn't bought in, then it just kind of dies. Sometimes I think people forget <clears throat> the bureaucratic approach to these things and they underappreciate. They focus more, oh, the conservation science, the conservation strategies. You just mentioned leadership plays such an important role to make sure that these things happen. Do they need a communication shop? Do you, you think out of this click snap process that you would get to the point where you're even making bureaucratic recommendations on if you really want to be successful, independent of the adaptation, the conservation science you might be using, you need to structure it this way. Great question. And I hadn't thought about it before, but I'm going to take that question and pose it to our workshop because it's a great question. Yeah, we all know that it takes more than the adaptation person to make this happen. And it takes more than the conservation staff. And communications is a great example. How do we talk about this to the general public or to our supporters who need to understand what we're trying to do. Scientists and conservation staff aren't always the best people communicating that, but the communicators aren't in this workshop to learn about it. So we're going to definitely have to bring them on board. And our fundraisers need to understand this. We typically go out and raise money for conservation projects. We're going to save the tiger. We're going to save the panda. We're going to save some wetland. And this is a different way of thinking about conservation. We might want to have tigers in this one place, but tigers might need to move to another place. So how do we pose that to a donor? So our development teams are need, going to need to be brought on board to make this successful. I will share an example from Florida. When I was at this, we had state wildlife grants program. It's funding for all the states. And there's certain criteria that you have to meet. So when we were doing climate change in Florida, it was always frustrating to get different offices, much like you struggle with, to integrate climate change. But one of our huge victories, at one point we made it, in your grant proposal, you had to integrate climate change in a very broad way, but in, in any way, that single-handedly drove a lot of different offices into start thinking. So it comes down to that money. Interesting that you should say that because we've noticed a lot more interest in adaptation since the Green Climate Fund came online with its $5 billion or so for adaptation work for developing countries. And all of these countries are now coming out of the woodwork. Hey, 
how do we access those funds? And we'll talk about that at this workshop. So you're right. Money is a great motivator, but we have to be careful that we're not just wrapping our business as usual conservation work in the cloak of adaptation to chase funds. Was it clear to you what I'm thinking about what this workshop is about? Yes and no. I think we might have to do like one of those recordings that we do back in D.C. What exactly is this? And you explained it, but... Well, this is the exact position everyone's going to be in tomorrow morning when I explain it. Part of the process is to learn it by doing it. But you do need your elevator speech for all this. And I think you are pretty close to it. If I had to re-explain it, I don't think I'd get exactly right. But I'm closer to figuring out what you're trying to do here. Work out a little vague for me, though, is like you were saying, we're not here at the end of the week to tell you how to do adaptation. It's like to look at your conservation strategy. Yeah. That, to me, okay, where's the adaptation? So that was a little vague for me. If I'm giving you feedback now. So. so a lot of people still think adaptation is about a single project, standalone project that you stick in somewhere in your overall conservation plan. And... A lot of people, I think, are going to have expectations of this workshop. Hey, we have forest fires in our country. Tell us what to do. How do we adapt our way out of that? That's not what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about you have forest fires. So is a long-term goal of saving that forest even viable with increasing number of forest fires? Okay. Does that make more sense? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly why the, the person from that was invited, he, he has problems with drought. He says, we need to figure out what to do. I said, well, you're not going to figure out what to do here. We're going to tell you, do you have the right conservation plan if you're getting more droughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that gets tricky. It's like, are you just giving that feedback on a good conservation plan and making that link to, like, this is part of that adaptation story? That's, that's a little bit tricky. Yep. <laughs> but... Reviewing your strategies is itself adaptation. We wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't climate change. And what we're doing wrong is that we're not considering climate change at the goal-setting stage of our strategies. We set our goals based on pre-existing biodiversity outcomes that we want to see. And then we think we're going to adapt our way somehow to achieve those goals. And not everything is achievable with climate change. You shared, Dan, a a clip from, like you said earlier, uh, Dan Ash came on the podcast about the ability to save everything. And it just seems like as you are describing defining goals at that stage, if we really listen to Dan's advice, you know, we're not doing that with these conservation plans. That's right. I see very few conservation plans, not just WWF, anywhere that's really embracing the fact As Dan put it, we are in a mass extinction crisis and we can't save everything. But one of our country offices has a strategy that says no more species extinction. And uh, Good luck with that. Yeah. So hopefully that's one thing we'll correct uh, in the course of this workshop. We understand that you need to be ambitious and aspirational. But, you know, I want to live forever. That's my aspiration, but I know it's not going to happen. So how can we be realistic and pragmatic as well as ambitious and hopeful? Okay, I'm with Sean Martin here on the first day of the event. 
Hey, Sean, what's going on right now? Well, we are three minutes before starting time, and I'm very happy to see that everyone's on time. Uh, I'm really excited about today. There seems to be a lot of energy in the room. People are talking and excited to be here. Are any folks here sort of curious on what they're up to this week? Have you had those conversations yet? A few of them. I haven't got to talk to everybody yet, but there are definitely people that came that we didn't know were coming because they were curious of what we're doing. So that's a good sign. Okay, and so what is our morning going to look like here? The first 90 minutes or so is really introductory stuff. We'll do some icebreakers and introduce people to what we're going to achieve in the next three days. And then after our break, we'll be digging into ClickSnap. Okay, great. Isaiah Uyunzi, I come from the Uganda country office, and I'm the, I coordinated the Energy, Climate, and Extractives program. I'm Jacob Etunganan. I'm working with the Uganda country office, and I specifically work on climate change work as a climate change manager. Okay, so you're here at this meeting, and what I'm asking quite a few folks is, what are your expectations? This is the first day of the meeting, so you know what the meeting's about, but what are your own personal expectations? Our exp- uh, my expectations is that the, the meeting will help us to kind of draw uh, a roadmap on how to how we shall work with our countries, for example, on uh, adaptation plans, how to implement the ad- adaptation plans, and also see how we can collaborate as an organization on taking forward the climate change work. And what about you? What are your expectations? I think my expectations, one, is to understand the clean stuff and really get to know what are the critical issues that we're looking at. And specifically also to kind of understand what kind of tools are we going to develop together so that we can be able to implement uh, the clean snap in the different countries' offices, especially given that we're embedding it to the formation of our national adaptation plan. We are going to start with a quick icebreaker. Everybody come to the center. We love each other. All right, we're going to do a quick exercise called Answer With Your Feet. So the first question is an easy one. If this is your first time to visit Kenya, move to this side of the room. If you've been to Kenya before or you live here, move to this side of the room. <laughs> Welcome to Kenya. <laughs> Welcome back. All right. Come back to the center. Thank you so much for everybody being on time. I love that. I make sure when I run a workshop, everything starts and ends on time. I brought my favorite facilitator's toy. When you hear that, it means the break is over. Please sit down. We have scheduled long breaks, 30 minutes, two twice a day, plus an hour for lunch. So we do this so you don't have to spend time looking at your emails or your laptops during the workshop time. So please do not play with your cell phones or be on your laptop. I have no problem shaming people when I catch them. (laughs) I only have to do it once and then it'll never happen again. As a facilitator, I learned from somebody very smart that to keep people off their cell phones, it's good to bring toys. So I promised you that I was going to bring toys. Each of you have toys on your table. There's enough for everybody. Feel free to grab your favorite toy 
and just play with it. So I just want to go over a few things of what, why we brought all of you here together and what we hope to get out of the meeting. Click Snap, which is Climate I. Informed Strategies and National You never have to say that again from now on, it's just click snap. So we brought all of you here together to start forming this community of practice around ClickSnap. And ClickSnap is what Philip just said earlier about mainstreaming climate considerations into strategies. And I've collected all the country's strategies that are represented here today and I've looked at them and we have not done that as well as we should have. And so we're going to try a few ways to introduce you to how to look at a strategy to tell if it is climate smart enough or not. And we are not here to tell you how to do this. We are going to expose you to some ideas. Collectively, we're going to decide as a community what's the best way for WWF to climate smart its strategies, or you can do whatever you want in your own offices. This is a learning practice. So we are building consensus of what we want ClickSnap to be. And then 10 people give you an overview in a second, but the, the NAP part of this, National Adaptation Plans, is to inform countries' national adaptation plans. And if our strategies aren't climate smart, how can we inform the national government what to do if we haven't thought about it ourselves? So those two things work together. All right? That's basically what we want to get out of this meeting. It's your meeting. Sandeep and I are here to facilitate, but we are here to support you in your ClickSnap journey. Sandeep is going to give us the overview of ClickSnap. So this is the, the climate and energy practice goal and outcome that has been approved by the NET. Our main goal is by 2030, an equitable and just transition is underway that limits global warming to 1.5, protects people and nature, and builds climate resilient future. The third the component part, which is key for all of us, that's on the adaptation outcome. By 2030, all countries are implementing national adaptation plan or equivalent that aims to build socio-ecological resilience to climate risks and impact. And so the adaptation outcomes had three key indicators. The first is the primary indicators. Number of countries are implementing the national adaptation plan or equivalent that builds socio-ecological resilience to climate. But, and the secondary indicators is about the financial flow that contributes to global goal and the loss and damage goal is there. The third component part, which is the, our internal focus, is X percentage of the national office incorporates a proactive framework to address climate risks into the strategy. By 2020, we want 75 of the offices to do so. And by 2025, we are expecting 100 offices to do so. Okay, we're starting. I'm interviewing some folks here, and I'm with... Uh, Philip Diambo from WWF Kenya office. Inge from uh, WWF Mongolia office. First off, since this is the first day, what really are your expectations for this meeting? Yes, for me, it is the session on uh, reviewing the strategies submitted the national office strategy. Really, my expectation is that we can make the strategies really be climate smart. 
uh, incorporating climate risks. Uh, Okay, so what are your expectations? Yeah, my expectation is really learning because we use in our uh, conservation strategy those words like resilient, climate smart, without uh, much knowing uh, the meaning, these words. Yeah? So I really have to know, uh, have to learn about how to, to make our conservation strategy climate smarting. We've seen a couple presentations this morning. Anything sort of stand out for you? You're like, oh, I didn't know we were going to do that, or that information shocking. Why are we even here? Yeah, for me, 75% of w all WWF offices, their conservation strategy to make uh, climate smart. It, it was, for me, a very ambitious goal. I hope we will be there. <laughs> but you don't think you're, we're going to get, you think 75% is probably too high of a number. Yeah, it's high. It's still high because you saw there are only about 10 yeah, participating offices at the moment. Okay. For me, from uh, just an observation from Sandeep's uh, presentation, uh, yeah, it was just interesting to note um, why some countries have not yet enrolled because that buy-in sometimes from the top management level is not as good as it should be. So would you agree with Anki that the 75% uptake with offices to, to do this is too ambitious, or do you think you guys are up for it? <laughs> it is a good challenge. <laughs> Safe answer, right? It, it's, it's good to be ambitious, set those targets. <clears throat> but I think um, the more we do the sensitization, especially within our own offices, because this makes a lot of sense, for me, we, we, we can meet that depending on how much we do the sensitization and bring out the message out clearly and the significance of what this is about. Then we can achieve that. Uh, my name is Sandeep Samling Rai. I'm based in WF Singapore office. So what's your role for this workshop? I'm one of the convener, like Son, and, and also the, the practice expert for climate adaptation work for climate and energy practice. What have you thought of so far? Has it met your expectations? Any surprises? The surprise, what I can say is that it's good engagement for the participant. And I can see a lot of energy in them in terms of discussing the issues. So it is a good sign. Your responsibility with WWF is working on the national adaptation plans across the planet. I guess I didn't quite get is that a country can have a national adaptation plan, but they have to fall under a certain category to do the national adaptation plans that you're helping encourage because they then will be eligible for some of this international funding. Yeah. That's true. The national adaptation plan, the terminology, what we say NAPS, is is came from the UNFCCC negotiation process, right? And and if you want to access the international funding from like the GCF and others, uh, the NAPS could be one of the prerequisites that each country needs to do. So a few of us have been at WF for a while remember John Matthews. He's a freshwater adaptation person, and he came up with this way to describe conservation in a changing climate. And our business-as-usual conservation assumes that the climate is not changing. And there's two ways we, we approach conservation assuming a stationary climate. We can restore ecological balance, repair damaged places, or we preserve things that are not yet damaged. And that works fine as long as the climate wasn't changing. And Chris, is the climate changing? From what I hear. Yes. <laughs> and not going to stop anytime soon. So 
What he proposed is climate change is affecting the paradigm of conservation. We can't do this anymore. We have to think about a changing climate and actually facilitating change, helping nature adapt, not trying to keep it the same, because that's impossible. So clearly the favorite color of ClickSnap is blue. Not everybody's favorite color is here. This is what consensus is. It doesn't mean everyone agrees. It means everyone can live with the group decision. So now we're going to use the same exercise on something that's a little more complicated. What are the essential elements of a climate-smart conservation plan? Well beyond your favorite color. So this is going to involve a lot more discussion at your table to come up with the final ones you want to present. Now, I noticed this table, you guys, everybody, almost everybody picked blue. So it was easy to come to consensus. Who picked another color? Yes, you, you lost, but are you okay with blue? Yeah. Three, I, I, but you were okay, yeah. But you guys, you had two blues and two greens, a pink, uh, a black. So how did you come to consensus on blue? We ran out of time. <laughs> That's always a good no, I mean, you know, We had a deadline. Yeah. Yeah. Blue and blue close to Let's go for blue. Okay, so you had a discussion on which one are we going to pick, and that's what consensus building is all about. You get all the ideas on the table, and then you sort it out as a group what you can agree upon. So think about this question. What are the essential elements or characteristics of a climate-smart conservation plan? Whatever that means to you. Or another way to think about it, what would you look for in a conservation strategy if it, to determine if it's climate-smart or not? You might have more than one answer to this question, and that's okay. We want lots of ideas. And I want you to write one idea per post-it note, up to three ideas per person. You know, take a few minutes to do that, and then we'll start snapping. I'll start with this table to present one idea. You just come to the front. We're going to start with Gia. She's going to say what it is, maybe say one sentence about what that means. And anybody else who has the same or similar idea, when she's done speaking, come up and snap. Okay. Gia from the Philippines. Um, so our first element is uh, identification of climate risks. That's self-explanatory. <laughs> Any snaps? Yeah. Come on up. Yes. Okay. He starts saying this is a little bit different, and so this is where it gets interesting. No, no, maybe not really. <laughs> so we just formulated this like takes climate change into account. Is that the same as identification of risks? So we're getting we're gonna stick it up here close to this one. But maybe it's not exactly the same. Mikhail? Okay, so ours is a bit more specific. It's an element of climate risk. It's documenting the current climate threats to all of your systems. Any snaps to that? So it's kind of a subset of this one. It's just more specific, going into more detail. Definitely along the same lines of thinking. Table one, next idea. 
addressing the climate risks. So any snaps to addressing what you've identified here? Yeah. Snap. If you're snapping, bring it up. Oscar. Just a comment on that is that it's not only addressing climate risk, but it's also opportunities for conservation. So just be a little bit more positive. <laughs> <laughs> addressing risk is positive. Not addressing the risk is negative, well but yes, very well said. I will summarize these during lunch into uh, what I think we've come to consensus to. There are one, two, three, four, five, six. I wanted to have five or six. Looks like we have them as our starting point. Now we're gonna refine these concepts and test them when we start actually looking at our conservation strategies. Does it have this? Does it have this? Does it have this? And then by the end of the workshop, we'll have a refined list that we can present to the entire network of what this group has come up with on what we wanna see as a climate-informed conservation strategy. My name is Nede Boot, and I work for World Wildlife Fund Guatemala, Mr. America, but based in Belize. Okay, so why are you here at this workshop? I'm here to um, contribute from my office, or input into the um, workshop, pretty much, see how we can contribute, see how we can benefit from it. What has surprised you during this meeting? Anything? Surprised me? I have been working on climate change for some years, but there are always avenues to learn something new. And so there are some things that I've learned, you know, new. I'm, I'm also very excited to see the number of participants here and how much people are interested in seeing that we try to mainstream climate adaptation across our conservation strategies, no? So Sean wants people to be completely honest and blunt. What have you liked about this workshop setup and what hasn't worked for you? Well, so far it's good. Um, just the environment. Um, it's very interactive. It's a nice blend of, cons of presentation and activity work, which I think is where you can really nail down and, you know, the issues and trying to address whatever challenges um, might arise. No? I'm getting also the opportunity to interact with my peers as well to see what I can learn from them and what I can share with them in, in, in return. Can you tell me a little bit something special about Belize? Uh, Belize, Belize. Um, it's, it's not only because I'm from Belize, but Belize is considered, you know, one of the natural jewels of the world. Sean is leading okay, them in something see. weird. Okay. Another one for the legs. Do this. You do a tree pose or grab your foot and pull it up. So you're pulling your knee next, your knees are together. Not up here, try to get your knees as close as possible. This is hard. And if you're really good, you can grab behind your back. Do that. Okay, and then, here's where I'm gonna really embarrass myself. You can go all the way to the floor. <laughs> okay, try with the other side. Oh. This next section is about buzzwords. Resilience is everywhere in our strategy. We're going to make sure it means something. So sustainability is really about maintaining balance indefinitely between natural resource consumption and replenishment. Okay, under a changing climate, that's really hard to do because climate change is undermining the natural resource base. Resilience is a different way of thinking about the world. It's withstanding and recovering from shocks and disturbance to maintain continued functionality. So Andrew Zolli, uh, I'm a big fan of his, 
He said, where sustainability aims to put the world back in balance, resilience looks for ways to manage an imbalanced world. We talk about, we're going to do sustainable fisheries, sustainable forest management, climate change mitigation, sustainable energy, as if that's building resilience. Sustainability does not always build resilience to climate change. So here's where conservationists kind of have trouble with this concept of resilience. We're thinking that when you withstand and recover from shocks and disturbances, we're thinking about returning back to what it used to be and maintaining continued functionality. We think that means we're not going to change. It's just continuing on as we had been in the past. And so this smart guy said, nature persists, but nature is big. Not every tree lasts forever. Not every stream flows until the end of time. The world changes and nature changes with it. When we understand that, we can begin to build resilience. It's about changing with change. We have all these words in conservation that really indicate we are managing for persistence, not change. All of our favorites, conserve, protect, remain, restore, return, fix, permanent, long-term, sustainable, sustainability. When you see those words in a strategy, it's a red flag. Can we really do that? Or do we have to manage for change, not persistence? Any questions? Comments? It's just to get your brain working. You don't have to agree with this, but eventually you will. <laughs> As we go through the exercises, you will see. We're going to apply some of these ideas and these ideas to our strategies in groups. And we're going to, after the break, and we are going to take the break on time, we're going to review the climate parts of our strategy to see if, are we thinking about climate risk as part of our strategies in climate change? We'll see. So I'm walking around as they're reviewing the conservation strategies again, and they'll read a country conservation strategy, then everyone will go around and give some feedback. So then on 3.1, mm -hmm. I really like the way that you had science-based climate data uh, for the connectivity. That was great. So presumably the corridors may even be in different places to what you would have done without climate change. And there, I like the refugia, which presumably are science-based. So, so that's, that's nice that you've got refugia in there. That's very nice. So I like the point that you made. Yes, because it's easy for me to see that uh, we are improving resilience of what? Yes. I agree with what he said about uh, using the, the wording of the stop, for example, 3.2 to stop soil degradation, deforestation, biodiversity loss. Um, like Sean has said, climate is an ever-changing uh, process, so stopping could be something very ambitious. So perhaps we can, by acknowledging climate is a threat to this target, we can, we can use the word, I would suggest the word minimizing or managing just looking around the room, there's people from all over the planet here coming together trying to identify adaptation strategies. I think that's the strength of this approach. WWF should be proud. We've got people from Central America, Asia, all coming up with conservation strategies, all trying to come up with adaptation strategies. Good. Plagwerks, one good thing is it just doesn't say conserve. It also say improve conservation of protected yeah, yeah. areas, etc. Yeah. 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 Uses and improve. Yeah, and by and improve by creating a new protected yeah. area. So yeah. which is fine. But yeah. like it's like a goal too. When you create a new protected uh -huh. yeah. area, you need to look from you need to make that is climate smart way. Uh, so, so 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 that's
I'm Mariana Chavez from WWF Mexico office. I'm the monitor and evaluation coordinator. What are your ex expectations for this workshop? To be honest, to understand a bit more about adaptation and climate change because it does my, it's not my main area of work. You know, just a little bit of a Mexican flavor. If you had to describe, okay, what are you really protecting in Mexico? And I know you could talk all day on that. So our main lines of work are uh, the monarch butterfly migratory route and then the hibernation site. Some work with the coral reefs in the Yucatan Peninsula. We have a big ocean program, which includes whales, sharks, turtles, and all the communities that depend on tourism with those species for their income. In the entire country, we have a big... Uh, water reserve program, which is we're trying to create water reserves that ensure that fresh water is protected. So, but what about you? Have you been a big fan of wildlife? Have you been an outdoors person since you were young? Yeah, I'm actually a veterinarian and I did some work with horses while I was studying. And then afterwards, I started moving into wildlife. So I started moving into conservation. Then I went and did my master's degree in conservation biology and worked for a while, for two years in the government agency that makes the protected areas in Mexico. And then after that, I moved into WWF. So now you're stuck in front of a computer all the time, though, right? <laughs> yeah, but I, I like it because uh, I'm a very structured person. So the whole strategic part of it and tracking things is I like it. But you you need to go into the field every once in a while to make sense of what you're doing in the computer and to recharge the batteries. And so we spent the bulk of the day in these groups where you've gone through sort of page by page. Is there any specific criticism against your Mexican plan that stood out or was it all just positive? No, no. <laughs> it definitely needs a lot of work. It's it's doing better because we've had a couple of exercises in our own office that have we have adapted a bit this strategy, but there's definitely a lot of uh, positive comments we've received about it. Now, what about the makeup of the workshop itself? I mean, do you like the structure that Sean has set up? Probably been to a, a bunch of workshops, a bunch of meetings. Yeah. I guess, what are the positives and negatives? And you can say something negative, Sean... He's open to it. He's open to it. We, this will be a boring podcast. Oh, it was really great. And anything that's not working or what's working? Um, I've actually really enjoyed the dynamic of the workshop. I've been to, through a lot of them and most of them are really long and you get lost in the middle of them. So he's very well at tracking time and keeping people on the subject you're supposed to review. And it helps out uh, the big breaks you get because you're able to attend whatever is going to your off in your office that's not going to stop because you're here. How do you feel about the fried gizzards at the coffee break? I yeah, there that that was really weird. I can't have salty things with my coffee breaks. Gizzards. So weird. And oh, please, coffee was a terrible downside of things. I can't have instant coffee. Right, right. Yeah, that was that was a really bad point. Yeah, Sean, please take care of coffee. Next time, we want brewed coffee. Yeah, freshly brewed, please. <laughs> I am Maggie Kinnaird, and I am the wildlife practice leader for WWF International. So what do you think of the workshop so far? Wow, the workshop has been great. For me, it's been especially important going through the various countries' strategies and trying to see where climate should be placed in the strategies where it's missing or where people have implied that it's there and, and the consideration may not be there. Because last year, the wildlife practice developed their strategy. And in going through it, 
we withdrew some of these comments that are being placed in now because we assumed that climate was ever present in people's minds and that we talked when we talked about resilient ecosystems that people would be thinking about the effects of climate change. I'm learning that that's not always true. And when you're trying to change people's approaches and especially, you know, just introducing something new to how we go about doing things, those statements might need to be in there. Uh, so I'm going back to our strategy to look at it with a, a bit of a different, a different look to it. Okay, maybe you give a little bit more background on that. So your position, it's sort of a higher level in WWF and, of course, the difference between these higher-level strategies, and then we see on the ground, it must be really useful for you to come to these kind of workshops. So maybe give a little bit more background on what you are trying to do in your position. Okay, well, the wildlife strategy, the wildlife practice strategy, is informed by all of these strategies that I'm reading through here at this workshop. And it's really great to see how they're thinking about incorporating climate change issues into their country strategies, and those all lead up to the uh, to fulfilling the overarching wildlife practice strategy. Okay, I just don't know enough about WWF, even after my relationship with Sean. So there's a wildlife strategy, but is there a, a sort of a broader adaptation strategy, and are those linked up? Are those two different things, or are they one and the same? No, there is not a broader adaptation strategy, but the wildlife practice strategy incorporates aspects of adaptation. I've looked through the conservation strategies. I've read them, and some of them are very different. You know, there's themes that are very similar, but as as you are dealing with a, a larger, broader strategy, are there things that kind of stand out for you, both po- positive and negative, on some of these, I guess, countrywide strategies? Mainly positive, um, because a lot of people are thinking about uh, landscape and protected area management. That's one of the primary outcomes of the wildlife practice strategy, which is vital habitats conserved and certainly with effective management being employed in those protected areas. Uh, thinking about connectivity, which brings in issues of, of climate change, ensuring that protected areas are connected to allow for new and different migrations, perhaps. So it's been positive seeing things like that incorporated into these strategies that I've been reviewing today. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So I'm Mariana Chavez from the Mexico office, and Ninel Escobar is our adaptation climate expert, but she couldn't be here, so she sent me instead. So this is our journey, which Ninel describes as definitely not a walk in the park. So basically, our conservation strategy are these four areas, and we have 10 outcomes, 8, 9, and 7, which is a lot. So uh, the process we did, as I mentioned, we have goals and we have outcomes for each theme. And what we did was we sat down, uh, Ninel and I, with, uh, with, um, with the goal coordinator, or basically the expert on that uh, theme, we sat down with them and we did this thing. So we decided we were going to do comments to the goals, and then we went into more detail at an outcome level. And we asked these questions. So the first one was uh, to identify or make sure we have a clear conservation or well-being target. This helps prioritize in case of extreme events. So for example, if you have, for your outcome, a protected area and a species, 
And in the future, the species moves out of the protected area, you need to be very clear <coughs> which is your priority, the protected area or the species. And it may change. In some cases, it's going to be the area, in some cases, the species. But if you don't have that clear, you can plan in the future what your, your strategy is we're going to be. Uh, we decided a climate risk for each one. I'm going to show you an example in the next slide. And then implications for the target about this climate uh, risk, and then ways to tackle this climate risk for, for our target. This was just a casual sit-down with the expert. We didn't want them to think it was a very long planning process again. So we just asked them, what is your idea of the goal? What do you think climate change is going to affect it? So just talk to me about it. So this example is a monarch butterfly, so I was telling you about yesterday. So our expert just started describing all the events they've been having and the impacts that that has had in the butterfly. So 22,000 trees fell down in 2016. Uh, how many butterflies died, how tourism is impacting uh, the butterflies. So if because of climate change, there, there's a warmer winter in North America. The butterfly comes down later and then cons uh, coincides with the tourists coming in. So it's a stressful moment for them. But because the tourists coming in, it's already written down the date they're allowed to go in, you can change it. So one of the problems is that they are going in at the same time, and that's going to be a risk for us. So we, with all the description they made, we set implications for the conservation targets. So, for example, if your conservation targets are the community, because they live or their income is based on the tourism, one of the impacts you might want to consider is if the tourism is not coming in anymore, those communities are not going to have an income. Uh, or if the butterfly is really stressed because of a weather or a very big storm, you're going to have a lot of butterflies dying. Or if they move outside of the protected area, your target is going to be affected as well. You need to decide which target you're going to stick with. And then finally, you uh, talk to them, or they talk to you, about ways to tackle those things. So they say we need to, for example, uh, shift or make flexible the tourism dates so they can come in once the butterflies are already settled down. Uh, we need to start monitoring, we're actually already doing this, so monitoring uh, where the butterfly is moving outside of protected areas and start to uh, plant trees in those areas to make sure it's a, a good zone for them to move. Questions? So yeah. it's not you that provided comments, you sat down at the table. Yes, so the team is uh, the climate expert, uh, in my case uh, me for monitor because the plan is my baby, <laughs> and then the expert on the subject. So it's just a casual talk. And it took about one hour, you said? Yeah, it's, it's about an hour with them. And it's very useful to mention this to them, because they're very busy all the time. They are done with all the strategic planning or a long process, so it's just one hour of their time. I'm Mariette Stevens from the Dutch office in the Netherlands. Okay, so what do you do there in that office? I'm the Climate Resilience Officer. I advise my colleagues on how to integrate climate adaptation into their conservation plans. 
All right. Give me a little, um, cause I'm curious, we had this conversation the other day, but just what are some of the issues that you're dealing with in the Netherlands? And I guess in some of the regions around there, just as a little bit of background, I think some people would be curious adaptation in the Netherlands. <laughs> well, we have a lot of experience with uh, nature-based solutions and adaptation in the Netherlands. We have this beautiful project called room for the river, where instead of building dikes, we gave way for the river. We uh, bought up lands. Well, not we WF, but the government on our advice bought up land. So the river can take its course in, in times of flooding and um, you, you get a beautiful nature uh, area back so that's the kind of solutions we really like did you have expectations heading into this meeting before you actually arrived here we've been we're on day two now but did you have expectations were they low were they high expectations because it's a little bit of an unusual meeting well, first of all, I really was looking forward to meeting some of my colleagues that I am um, I speak on the phone or I'm on email, but I don't travel a lot. So uh, that was especially my colleagues from Mongolia, Malaysia, Indonesia, Russia. It was uh, really heartwarming. I had high expectation of the workshop, but I have been to Sean's workshops on adaptation before, and it was really good. And especially the first day was really very good. I think the exercise where we try to come up without any background information, where we try to come up with what uh, do we think uh, is climate smart conservation. And what you saw that people came up with all the elements that were needed uh, before even told so. So, so we have, we have to trust more on our own knowledge. So it's, it's a very good way of affirming what you already no one expects. I guess, did you have the chance to give feedback if things needed to change? Yeah, I've already had the experience of giving feedback to, uh, on some of these plans. And what you see in in general, why you on on a level of advisors can have very good and serious discussions, and you try to write up things, but very often what happens on the management level, it, it's got, it, it disappears. Um, and you have worked on it for quite some time, so that can be very disappointing. I heard a recurring theme, and this maybe you picked it up too, is that so even if the, though these conservation strategies might be well on their way to be get, becoming good adaptation strategies, people say a key part of any of this is good leadership, and it might not even be people in this room. And if you don't have that leadership back in your home office or even in the head of government, a lot of adaptations all for naught. Did you catch? pick up on that sort of theme and do you agree well in our in our office it's a bit different management both the director and head of uh, conservation think this is really important but the problem is that uh, it's uh, at the level of implementation of the level of the experts it's considered to be important but not urgent and unless the management also really guides the whole process and, and holds people accountable for what they have promised, it's still going very slow. And when I started doing this, I told my director, look, you're asking for a culture change. What? Because conservationists are by nature conservative. They look at the past and look what has worked and what didn't work. And they're going to repeat that. So this whole forward-looking thinking, looking at the future, looking at scenarios, that's completely new to most people. And they feel challenged. It's about, I, I think, I sometimes think I give them an identity crisis when I talk about climate change. They don't, they do not want to think about it because they have so many other issues on their plate already. You you have a few things to say about the use of science that, that yeah. Well, we, we, we started the climate smarting process by a decision of the head of conservation 
to look into the climate impacts for all our uh, uh, Dutch uh, priority regions. There are 13 um, terrestrial regions we focus on. And we had an interesting researcher and he went ahead and did his research. And there was a complete mismatch between our expectations and what people needed on on the ground and what he came up with. What he came up with, even our science advisor and me, who has seen some climate scenarios, found it so hard to understand. And my conservation colleagues could not comprehend it at all. So we sat down with them for three hours and took them through. But what it did is it put people off. They got scared. I don't understand this. I need to understand this. So instead of engaging them, we sort of push them away with this scientific information. So while it can be really good if you already know what you want to know and you have really good extensive conversations with the scientists, it won't really help the implementation of climate adaptation on the ground in the first phase. And I think the approach that the Mexican office has taken just to sit down with people, not necessarily necessarily talk about climate change, but what do you see happening? What is your experience? That can be really empowering and helping people to see. Any final thoughts about we have one more day tomorrow or things that you might take back to the office after you, you return to the Netherlands? Yeah, I, I have, I have so many ideas. My head is, is a bit, <laughs> is a bit exploding at the moment, but certainly I will take away the, the Mexican approach just to sit down with the experts and ask them what, what they see happening and, and involve them and engagement and them, empower them. Any thoughts for Sean? Do you want to talk directly to Sean? What do you have to say to him about this workshop or what they should be doing after this workshop? More stretching. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm here with Nikhil Advani on the second day. I want you to spring some dirt. And since this is audio, you can just wink once for yes, two for no. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been great so far. Um, For me... One of the nicest things with these meetings is you meet to discuss, uh, in this case, you know, it's sort of launching the ClickSnap strategy and how we're going to work together moving forward. But these are all colleagues that I've worked with before. A bunch of them I've funded projects in their countries within the last year. So it's really a nice way to catch up with people. So tell me about the first day. Meet your expectations, anything missing? Yeah, I thought it was good. We started to do a a bit of a deep dive into some of the strategies, did an overview of the whole climate smarting process and what kinds of things to look for, and a lot of nice sort of interactive activities. Why do you see value in the whole ClickSnap process? Well, the idea is that all officers are mainstreaming climate adaptation into what they're doing. And up until now, I feel like it's the kind of thing that people just pay lip service to. They'll write climate smart here and there in their strategy, and they'll claim that they're adapting to climate change. And that's not the reality. So I think this is a good way to sort of develop a more coherent approach to it. But but the next step to me, even this is, is, a, is an intermediate step. What really needs to happen after this is for all the different countries and all their strategies, we need to start identifying one or a few projects where we can really integrate climate change adaptation. So you have quite a few projects that take you out in the field yourself. Maybe give an example of that. I think you work with elephants. What, what are those projects? Yeah, a lot of my species work is actually behind a desk and working with experts, not necessarily interacting with the species. But yeah, a lot of my work is 
getting data on how communities are being impacted by climate change. So next week I head out to Madagascar and I'm doing a training for Peace Corps volunteers. So we work with the Peace Corps in over 10 countries and the volunteers are collecting data for us on how the communities they live in are being impacted by climate change. And then we're working with them to develop and implement projects that help those communities adapt to climate change. Okay, so you're collecting some data and then you go to that process of actually helping them implement it. But how does that, what you're doing, especially with the data, plug into a country office adaptation plan? Does your work fit seamlessly into that process? Yeah, great question. It should. And up until now, you know, in all the countries we work in, we've had more engagement with the WWF office in some countries than in others. And Mexico is a great example. In Mexico, the WWF office, Peace Corps, and CONAM, which is the Mexican National Park Authority, all three are working together very closely. And Climate Crowd, which is a project I'm talking about, is one of the, the projects that they work on. You know, ideally, the data that we're collecting in all these countries will inform the, the strategy for that country office. It's the last day of the workshop on Friday here, and so everyone is sitting around tables and they're having discussions based on some questions that Sean has put forward to them. And I want to share those questions really quickly so you have some context of these conversations that are happening. Sean asked them to answer these questions. Who in your office will be the person responsible for rolling out the climate review? Two people, adaptation if available, and another, who should they be? The second question is, what form of documentation do you think would be appropriate? Third question, what time frame do you think it's realistic to go through the review and produce documentation? Can this be accomplished in the next six months, next year, longer? Fourth question, who in your office will drive the national adaptation process? How will they be involved in the climate review to ensure learning is passed on? And finally, what challenges might you encounter? How can you overcome these? What are your capacity needs? Those are a lot of big questions that they're answering. And so I'm looking out at these different tables and all these people from these different countries are trying to answer those questions and trying to figure out how their offices are going to work on these issues. All right, I'm going to go back around and start listening in a bit more. Definitely my lesson is, and that's also what's stated here, don't try to do this on your own. Try to involve somebody, hopefully for your management team or another colleague, because you need the support to do this. I think we, we should use Mexican approach. Me, myself, as a climate and energy public point, I, I should be there. And also we should use our uh, conservation director because he is the person to develop this conservation strategy for how you frame it is also really important. Yeah. Yeah. So if you just frame it as we need to mainstream climate change, they're just going to see it as, well, that's your work. But if you frame it in the context of this is a risk to you achieving the objectives or goals for your strategy, it will be easier to bring people in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Countries have, sometimes they don't have a standalone map. It's yeah. integrated with their mitigation plan. Yeah. That's something I learned new yesterday. No, but I think it's another compulsory for countries to prepare NAMS. They can do either or, but NAMS is a process. And the, the Philippines one, they are using the same process for their national climate change plan, for example. Yeah, I didn't know that until yesterday. Yeah. I think it's really good we came up with some common yeah. principles for our yeah. network to advocate yeah. in the NAMS. Yeah. And that, that will be applicable for all countries. Yeah. Do you think this click-snap process is worth an ongoing 
dialogue with the same people in these rooms to come back on an annual basis every two years? Uh, yeah, that's sort of our plan, and we don't want to keep it limited to the 16 countries that are represented here. We actually want to bring in more WF countries. We have over 100 offices, and eventually everyone needs to go through a process like this. So we hope in the future our meetings will continue to grow and we continue to learn from one another. But yes, the idea is over the next few years through 2020 that we'll be rolling this out across our entire network. Gavin Jolles, Senior Marine Conservation Officer for Climate Change and Marine Turtles for WWF Malaysia. What did you think of the workshop? I, I thought it was wonderful for myself because I'm trained for climate change multi-assessment and this pr- pr- workshop provided us tools on a way to make our strategies much more focus on climate change impacts. What did you think of the workshop structure in regards to how it was managed and what the activities that you did? I thought it was really fun. I thought Sean, uh, well, other workshops that I've been to is very, very detailed, you know, really going to the nitty gritty of certain strategies. Um, but for this particular workshop, it's fun. That's how, how the facilitators actually allow you to, um, achieve certain objectives in the workshop but done in a very fun way aside from you know having able to comment other strategies of other countries which you actually learn from other countries uh, you also get feedbacks from them about your particular strategy so from that particular platform it actually enables me to hey these are things that i need to go back and learn about it and then also hey i also learn from other uh, countries so i like it a lot for this particular structure so you, you have some interesting stories or information to tell about uh, turtles and climate change, if maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, sure. In Malaysia, we we actually home to some of the largest turtle nesting population in Southeast Asia. We have the green turtle and the hawksbill turtle, which is the most common species in that region. The one particular story was that actually we can see turtles are actually adapting to climate change. For example, one of the threats to marine turtles is the erosion of its nesting beaches. So it can be really steep for them to come up. But we thought that if there's erosion happening in the beaches, it'll be less nestings. But it seems that even though it is uh, eroding, turtles will still try to come up and nest in that nesting beach. They will find a way to actually go and um, nest in that particular area. So apart from humans, we can see some species are already slowly finding mechanism a way to adapt to climate change so but they're successfully nesting they'll nest and they'll lay the eggs and then the eggs will hatch that that's all happening yes that's all happening yes indeed so are you writing about this are you publishing that i'm sure there's i'm from florida and there's a lot of sea turtles there you know i don't know this different species (laughs) i'm not a researcher but you you go to the beach and you see the 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 net and so i haven't heard of anything about that sort of adapting but I'm not following very closely, but are you? is WWF publishing materials? Because I think that'd be very interesting for a lot of people around the world. We are actually have uh, activities monitoring the, the beaches in terms of how eroding the beaches are and then the temperature of the sand where they actually lay their eggs. So we are currently have working on the ground, people on the ground collecting those kind of data. So we indeed wanted to publish that to share it to other areas that, hey, there's something perhaps you can learn from this particular country. Hey Adapters, we are back from our trip to Kenya, and I'm back here with Sean Martin. And first off, I just want to give my observations about that workshop. I feel really lucky that I got to go there in person and talk to all these folks and witness what they were doing. 
Some takeaways from the workshop for me is that I just thought there was a lot of positive energy. I've been to plenty of workshops where people are checking out halfway through the workshop. I think a lot of the WWF staff were curious on what was going to happen at this workshop, and I got to interview them at the beginning, but the, I think their enthusiasm maintained throughout the, the entire workshop. And actually adapting conservation, it's not easy. There's not a lot of guidance on that, and I think that the people participating in this workshop – I think at the end of it really felt they had some practical advice that came out of it. I think they really liked the structure that you set up for it, that independent of the, the content is just how you kept people engaged. I thought was very innovative and I wasn't even participating that much and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And so I, well done, Sean. And I'm curious your thoughts on what happened at that workshop. Yeah. Going back and listening to some of the interviews you did, I, I did notice a lot of people were seemed seeming to have a good time and, uh, you know, I've been to my fair share of boring workshops, and I, I just noticed that if you know people aren't engaged in having fun at workshops, they're not motivated to go back and move forward. So I worked very long and hard to make sure that you know we used long breaks and had toys at their tables, and most you know we had very few presentations. A lot of it was interactive discussion, and that's all by design to make sure that people are enthused and motivated, and they you know went home and tried out. The click snap process. I'm also was really pleased with how we came up with some six essential elements of climate smart conservation and how we're employing those in our, our strategies now. Okay, Sean. So we had the opportunity to go back a couple months later after the workshop and check in with some of the participants and seeing how their click snap journey is progressing. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so first we're going to hear again from Kate Tepperman, who kind of opened the episode. She works in Vietnam, and she's going to talk about the process there. And then we're going to hear from Melissa DeCock from WWF Norway. Uh, she gave a presentation to the ClickSnap community on a Skype call, and you'll learn about how the process went in WF Norway, and then you'll hear some of our staff asking questions. And then finally, we'll hear from Ninel Escobar Montesinos, and Mariana Chavez from WF Mexico to talk about how things have been going there. Okay, let's dive right in. Yeah, I came back from the workshop and the, the first thing I, we did was we had a climate and energy practice planning day and I gave a very quick overview of what ClickSnap is and why it's important. I think there was some concern in that meeting initially around real impact versus whether we were getting stuck on semantics and about, I guess, a desire in WWF Vietnam's management to ensure that if we're going to do this, then it's not just superficially ticking a box and changing some words, but it's actually going to be impactful and useful for our work. I was introducing the climate smart language based on that briefing page that Sean gave us during the workshop. And I think that sort of was the wrong approach to introduce to people because it didn't give a comprehensive enough introduction at the beginning and kind of created this debate around, you know, semantics and challenges. You know, it's like gender mainstreaming. It's another thing we have to integrate into our work. But is it actually going to have an impact into how we actually go about our strategy planning and what the outcomes of our work are? So then... We had the freshwater, oceans, climate and energy practice. We had staff come up from Ho Chi Minh City and the Hawaii field office. And I think the uh, that day was presented much more as a conversation, an introduction to the concepts and an opportunity to share experiences. 
And I think it was run a bit more as a mini version of the Nairobi workshop. And I think the generally people were very open to the idea and to learning and the practice leads there were quite interested. But in that workshop, we didn't actually go into the more specific assessment of the uh, strategies, which we had done in the second stage of the Nairobi workshop, where we actually read through the strategies and um, provided critique and input into where they may not be climate smart. So then the the sort of third thing that's happened since that half-day training day is there was a strategic planning meeting in Ho Chi Minh City for our ocean freshwater team and included the food practice lead, M&E, and our conservation director as well. And they had an agenda item on ClickSnap, and that was really about discussing how to integrate ClickSnap into our strategy work because we're very much in the middle of our strategy development work at the moment. And I think in in that meeting there were some challenges around, well, the reactions were really around the question of how to practically integrate this into the planning process when we're developing our conceptual model. So the feedback that I got was that they were coming across some difficulties and losing focus. Even, for example, in some areas you may see some people may have regarded the human threats were potentially seen as more significant in a hierarchy of threats than climate change. And by focusing on the climate integration or analysis of climate threats into that strategy, there was some concern that they were losing, getting a bit lost and losing sight of what needed to be a priority. That was kind of one challenging aspect that has come up. I'd say the single biggest challenge at the moment based on the introductory work we've done to ClickSnap with the staff is really about building this understanding now of how we practically integrate it because there is support. Um, management does recognise that it's important and staff do generally, but then how to take it to that next step is a little bit difficult. I just wanted to mention, like, for example, in the workshop, there was some really useful examples provided by Mexico's experience, and I think that was helpful for us to be able to refer to as an example of how they integrated it from the beginning of the strategy work. So, yeah, I was we were thinking more examples like that would be great as well. <laughs> so, Kate, you, it sounds like you're going to be leaving WWF relatively soon, and based on your experiences, are you optimistic that – the process that you've been involved in will survive once you've left and, you know, what are you encouraged about and what are you concerned about? I am optimistic that it will continue because I think the staff in the climate and energy uh, practice team who would be leading it really see the value in it. My concerns are that I think there's a few things that remain to be seen while there's support for the climate smarting process. I think that when you try to integrate it into a long and already complex strategic planning process and with people who are very busy, it's difficult to see whether that is going to be prioritised. But I think the, the main concern or barrier contributing to that is that it really requires somebody to push it internally and that's impacted by staff capacity. But I also think having been through the the Nairobi workshop is a massive asset. I gave a three-quarter of a day training to everybody, but, you know, I'm new to some of these concepts as well. So I, I found the Nairobi workshop 
really, really valuable in a way that I think is it's kind of unique to coming from the click snap conveners. I'm sure that's music to Sean's ears, but just sort of a follow-up question. <laughs> is there anything else that could have been done differently at the workshop to make your experience more productive? I mean, what should they have done any differently? I don't really have any criticisms. I've been to a lot of workshops in the last year, and I thought it was really good. And I, I felt a little bit like, yeah, quite on board with ClickSnap, you know, almost, I don't want to use the phrase, I drank the Kool-Aid, but I think going back to the office, I was really quite convinced of the importance and I I was really excited. I find the work really interesting and I felt pretty driven to actually, I guess, share it with colleagues. And I think that was in part because the workshop was really enjoyable and there were a lot of passionate people working on interesting projects there that I got to speak to. So that kind of helps to build your excitement and momentum as well. You're allowed to say that the coffee was awful. (laughs) Yeah, the coffee was so bad. I forgot about that. (laughs) I'll, I'll be fairly quick. I've only got three or four slides to talk through. We're very sort of new to the process of click snapping our conservation strategy. I took them through click snap, what it is and why we're doing it as a reminder. I then went through some of the information about what exactly is climate smart conservation and then how to climate smart our conservation strategies and what climate risks were and how we needed to look out for them. I'll get to to what what happened during that process, but it was a very um, interactive process where um, a lot of people asked a lot of questions, which was very useful. I encountered a couple of challenges in the discussion. The first one was that some people thought that going through the strategy and strategic objectives just to change the word was just semantics. You know, what difference does it make if we we change the wording? And I had a, a, a long discussion with them as to how the wordsmithing was actually just a way of creating awareness and getting us to think outside of our normal, straightforward conservation work. You know, when we're writing goals and strategies, we just fall into the habit of using conserve, preserve, secure, and that the wordsmithing was really just to make us think a bit more about what it is we actually were trying to do with the climate lens on it. The other one that I found, which was I, I was a little surprised at, was people seeing adaptation as giving up on mitigation. That they thought it, you know, if we're still going to do mitigation and then we do adaptation, isn't that giving up on, on the mitigation battle? And it's, it's really a, an ongoing discussion to make people understand that even if we stop all emissions today, climate change is still going to happen and we're still going to have to adapt. We're already having to adapt now, so we're going to have to adapt in future. And it's just, it's just really about having ongoing discussions with people and saying we're not giving up on mitigation. It's not an either or, we have to do both. The other issue was the project-based versus the mainstreaming. A lot of people uh, seem to want to just leap into actual standalone projects rather than thinking about how they need to integrate climate change into their existing work. So that's also an ongoing challenge that we, we, we have to tackle. So what I've discovered, and, and I think most people will, un- will know these lessons, is that we can't assume that everyone gets the need for adaptation. You know, thankfully, there's been a, a lot of publicity of late about how adaptation has to happen, but people still don't really think about adaptation in their day-to-day work. 
So providing the rationale for it, talking them through why, why it's not giving up on mitigation, it's really an ongoing task. You can't assume that you can do one or two discussions and everyone's just going to do what we think needs to be done. Also, in terms of the wordsmithing, we need to show the clear path from wordsmithing the strategy to actual implementation of a climate smart strategy. That it's not just about doing the plan, putting it on the shelf and continuing business as usual. It's actually about walking the talk. And then the last uh, sort of lesson was that, again, it's, it's not a once off. You've got to provide that ongoing support. You've got to provide ongoing reminders about integrating adaptation. And that hopefully at some point down the line, everybody is going to get it and do it. But I think, you know, at one point we sort of hoped that we wouldn't have to have an adaptation focal point to promote the ongoing integration. But it looks like this position will be needed for a while because otherwise people just forget about it and get on with their usual work. Thank you. That was it. Thank you, Melissa. So let's start with John. Okay. Thank you very much, Melissa. It's John Morrison. I had a question. When you get to the climate risk, looking at climate risks, Will you be looking at the range of uncertainty that the various climate models, the GCMs are going to show? And are you going to be using scenario planning? Those are my two questions. Thank you. It's going to, it, I mean, the, the initial broad brush stroke that I envision will be a lot more superficial than that. It won't be, you know, the climate risks for predators are their prey will move north and they will struggle to find food unless they move north, but they can't move north because of habitat or something like that. We're not really going to go into the, are there gonna be more hot days or less hot days or more wet days or things like that, but just to sort of very broad brush, what, what are the risks to our particular targets? Down the line, certainly, I would very be very keen to get into scenario planning. I think that's a really important and useful tool in, in, in climate change. But for this first broad brushstroke approach that I hope to have done by June next year, in fact, by February next year, it's just going to be very sort of top level stuff. Great. Thank you. And we'll take a question from Hakelo and then we'll move on to Gia. Uh, thanks, Martin. Hello, everyone. My question is around the challenges that you highlighted. The last point where you're saying project-based versus mainstreaming. And I didn't quite hear your views on that because I'm asking this since it talks to basically our approach from the South African side where we are saying currently let's focus a lot on projects on the ground as opposed to focusing most of our energy on the mainstreaming or bringing in the climate risks into our, str our conservation strategies. Okay, thanks, Ha. My personal view is that as a first step, we should focus on making sure our existing conservation strategy is climate smart, which means we need to mainstream climate into all our existing work. Like the Keta program that Joe and Nelly are working on, you need to think about how climate's going to affect those communities and wildlife because it doesn't matter how much illegal wildlife trade you stop, if you know, the river's going to stop flowing, then the wildlife's going to go away. We take a huge risk on investment and on achieving our stated goals if we don't mainstream climate into our existing conservation strategies. 
But then on the other hand, there are a lot of funds for standalone adaptation work. So I think if we have the capacity, we should certainly do that work because that shows proof of concept to the disbelievers about adaptation. It helps us work with governments. It helps us secure livelihoods for communities and you know, improve resilience for ecosystems. But we should never sacrifice mainstreaming for doing projects. We, we have to make sure that our conservation strategies are, are climate smart in order to achieve our, our, our office goals. And then we can also do projects, is my personal opinion. No, that's it. That's appreciated. It's a good one. Thanks for, for that response. Thank you, Melissa. That was great. And thank you for the good discussions. This is exactly the kind of discussions we want to have in this community of practice. Hi, this is Ninel Escobar. I'm a, the Climate Change Coordinator at WWF Mexico. Hi, I'm Mariana Chavez, and I'm the, the M&E Coordinator. Okay, Ninel, I'm curious, and we've talked to other countries that are going through this process, and most of the time the example is that maybe there's a culture of people just to want to do this new thing. Uh, they already are doing what they're doing, and why do they need to do adaptation? And what I'm talking about is this climate smart work that offers these new ways of doing things, but has anyone ever sort of asked you something that you're like, well, I'm not quite sure. I don't remember at the moment <laughs> that, that kind of situations. The first thing I noticed with, with the technical staff uh, when we try to introduce these concepts and to try to formalize the thinking about climate change is that they have a lot of taboos or prejudice about climate change. So the, the thing about uncertainty, the thing about information, the thing about uh, it is not important enough to pay attention uh, to, and the last, which is very present, is I don't have enough time to take care of this. <laughs> But I, I think we, with, with a lot of effort and with a lot of time, we work with each of these barriers to start like thinking about climate change in a more open and, and open way. But we need to systematize the way we think about that. Mariana, as an observer of this process that Ninel's doing, can you offer your own insight to how this has unfolded? Has there been kind of any pushback? Yeah, sure. And yeah, definitely Ninel is leading this as the expert uh, here at the office, and I'm more of uh, helping when it's needed. The interesting thing for me is that I'm, I'm more in touch with the people on the ground with conservation area, and I can see they they take climate change into account because they see it every day and it's events they are constantly having to deal with, but they don't necessarily are making the link between that and including it on the strategic plan. And you know, since you missed the Nairobi workshop, it was a really great meeting and Mariana really enjoyed the hot chicken gizzards that they served during morning <laughs> coffee. That was <laughs> such a That's great what I heard. <laughs> good coffee treat. All right. Seriously though, uh, Ninel, and this is for both of you though. So what has happened in Mexico since the workshop? Well, we did it very well until, <laughs> until to deliver Nairobi's material. Uh, but after that, it is like with any deadline that people rest after that. So we noticed that in our next conservation staff uh, meeting, like realizing that people are not showing a lot of progress on on working with the strategic planning and also like working on identifying like specific activities related to climate adaptation. Yeah. So, so just to give you an example, Doug, of what, what happened... 
about a month ago or a little less, we had a, a meeting with all our conservation staff for each area to present their annual work plans. And when one of the areas started to present their work plan, he, he started saying a lot of things that are not climate smart or using the words we're not supposed to use. And you can imagine Ninel's eyebrows just I getting higher and higher and higher. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had that bit of a reality check where we were not sure if people were, if they're just not remembering what we mentioned before, or maybe they're just using a, a older version of the strategy. Yeah, we talked about it, and Inel had a this this good idea to to address our CEO and and get him to talk to the staff and and tell them how important this is. So we're it's not only us to pushing them to do something that they don't see the point for now. Um, but it's also uh, our CEO coming from the top saying, well, this is important because this will help us get to somewhere in the future. And also, we noticed that that some of the staff is still thinks that that climate smarting work is my work and not <laughs> their responsibility. So we have to work a lot with that idea, too, because it is easy. And, and, and I think it happens with many with many topics. I mean, there's an expert of that topic. And why, why do I have to bother to start looking for information, understanding? And I try to be very clear on that, uh, that our role is a supportive role and a real climate smart organization. It is not made up by a single person that knows everything and do the whole job. It is more like about building capacities uh, along the whole staff and they will be able to manage and to, to respond for climate change risk in their daily work because I'm not the the one who is doing the the most important conservation work in in the office. So we we are now like thinking about how to deal with those uh, barriers and we have come up with some strategies to do that. In that situation where someone says, "Oh, well this is your role and responsibility." And I mean, could you get, kind of dig in maybe to a specific example with someone? Yes, I think this has to has to do a lot also with the barriers we mentioned at the beginning. I mean, uh, when you start like talk with people uh, in terms of like make them realize that climate smart approach is not very sophisticated. That you know you don't need to have a PhD, you don't need to read like fifteen papers, you don't need to. I mean, it's more like a a thing of attitude and taking the right approach because this is the barrier they have like no I'm not I'm never going to be as expert as you because I have not invested six years on knowing all these issues and and I think the first thing to say is that it's easy it's an easy thing and you are perfectly able to do that within a within a two months within six months you have to do a lot of effort but it is not like a rocket science thing so yeah, maybe there's a wrong uh, interpretation of what we are expecting them to do. Uh, one important step we are working with Mariana, and I think it's very valuable for uh, valuable for me to having her in the in in the team is that I I'm very familiar with with the concepts and with the topics, and for me it's like, come on, why won't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> and Mariana told me, no, it's not that easy. Perhaps we can we have to frame this this way or this way. And for me, I mean, I I do not consider myself an expert, but I'm knowledgeable about the topic. So for me now at at this point, it's difficult to see why they don't get the information. So. Mariana is helping a lot with that and to try to make 
things even simpler. I mean, if we want to be a leaders in conservation, we need to integrate climate change. It's about leadership as an organization and, and as a technical staff. This is why we're a very good team. We have the same struggles. <laughs> so, Sean, we just heard from three WWF offices on what they have done since the ClickSnap workshop in Nairobi. What are your main takeaways from what we heard? Well, first of all, after listening to these four women, I am incredibly honored to have the opportunity to work with them, and I'm really proud of what they're doing. Saving nature has never been easy and climate change is making it that much more difficult. We've heard some of the challenges they're facing in getting some of their colleagues on board, but they're not giving up. Shifting the paradigm of how we approach conservation is an enormous task. And what's happening in some of the offices really gives me hope that WWF is moving in the right direction. So are there any common themes that emerge from these follow-up discussions that make you want to make some revisions to the process WWF is developing? Sure. The one obstacle everyone ran into was using the red flag words, words like preserve, protect, conserve, as a way to identify where our work is at the greatest risk to climate change. And we really wanted this to be a fairly simple exercise as a way to get people to question the viability of their conservation goals and to rethink how they might make their goals more open-ended and flexible. But a lot of people seem to think this was just a rather pointless exercise in semantics. So we're going to have to make some changes there to make sure that people understand why we're doing all this in the first place. But there's some other takeaways as well. I think we learned just how crucial support is from leadership. Without some kind of mandate from the top, this work is really hard to sustain. And we also heard the importance of not doing this alone. Almost all of our offices have just one single adaptation officer to try to get everyone else on board. And I think one of the reasons why Mexico has been so successful is because they have a partnership. Ninel and Mariana are working together and supporting each other and learning from one another. I think that's really important. And finally, we heard from many of our staff how much they appreciated the approach WWF Mexico is taking. They didn't do long planning workshops. They didn't use a lot of heavy science up front. They just had simple one-hour conversations with their colleagues to talk about what they're already seeing in their work and how climate changes are affecting it. So putting the conservation experts in the driver's seat and empowering them to use the knowledge they already have, I think, is a really powerful way to get people started down this path. That's great. This whole process is been great. I, it, it's been an honor for me to be part of it, but what's next for ClickSnap? So we're going to take all this learning and I'm currently writing some guidance for our office to use. And we're going to keep learning from each other as we move forward. We're going to have regular calls like you heard from Melissa and our colleagues earlier. And we're going to have regular check-ins to strengthen our community of practice. And we're also going to expand the number of offices participating in ClickSnap. WF Brazil, Cameroon, and Myanmar have already joined this year, and I'm hoping to also get WFUS on board in 2019. And finally, we really need to focus on what's happening with the national adaptation plans. Depending on how countries help their people adapt to climate change, NAPs could become yet another threat to conservation. And by working with governments in the adaptation planning process, we're really hoping to create new opportunities for nature. Okay, Sean, so the journey of this podcast is almost over. So any last final thoughts? Well, the journey of the podcast is almost over, but the adaptation journey never ends. I really hope your listeners, whether they're working in conservation like me or in urban planning or at some company or really in any field, enjoyed this episode and taken away some ideas they can use in their own work. And I really hope they'll share their experiences with you and your audience. The only way we're going to adapt is to get out there and try stuff 
learn from our successes and our mistakes, and share what we learned with others. And that's really what motivated me to do this episode. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. What an epic episode. I hope you enjoyed this worldwide adaptation adventure. Thanks to Sean Martin for including America Adapts in this process. I feel like I need to do an episode on just the making of this episode. So much went into this. We've been working on this episode for eight months. Thanks again to everyone at WWF who participated. I feel very lucky I got to start this process off at their Kenyan workshop. And then I had additional conversations with WWF staff from all over the world. I was Skyping early in the morning with people from the Philippines, Madagascar, Mexico, South Africa. Sometimes it was hard to keep track of what time zone everyone was in. As I said earlier, even if you aren't doing adaptation and conservation, the lessons learned here are applicable to so many other sectors. Figuring out how to bring adaptation into your existing work isn't easy. There are so many obstacles to bringing new approaches to things. I hope what you heard here can help you as you work in your diverse adaptation fields. Share this episode with your coworkers. Share it with your boss. Let them know there are pathways to adaptation in your existing work. Groups are working on this, but it will take effort and innovation. Thanks again, WWF. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization, and it's the end of the year, and America Adapts needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadaps.org. Also, I hope you learn from this episode. I do sponsored podcasts. Maybe there's an adaptation story you need to tell and want to reach a huge network of adaptation professionals. Please reach out and learn more. All right, don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll approve you right away. There's some great insider conversations that go on there. Okay, on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it is the highlight of my week when I hear from you guys. I get random contacts all the time. It's awesome. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. Again, just look down at those show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.